This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, over the next several months, sorting and delivery services will be consolidated for dozens of post offices across the country. But the plan is raising some concerns from worker leaders and lawmakers. And the White House has announced the launch of a $2 billion national biotechnology and biomanufacturing initiative to promote innovative solutions in health, climate change, energy, and more. Then the country's newest military service now has a song. The writer of the Space Force's Semper Supra shares his inspiration behind the anthem. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Earlier this year, the U.S. Postal Service announced plans to consolidate mail processing operations across the country. Ivan Butts is the president of the National Association of Postal Supervisors. It's an association that represents about 48,000 Postal Service supervisors, managers, and postmasters. Ivan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So let's start with the plan. What's the purpose of this plan, and how will it impact operations in post offices? Well, as we read in uh, uh, the PMG's 10-year plan, it's designed to align logistics with retail. And uh, it's, it's a streamlining uh, uh, impact uh, that we've seen in, in years past. So we don't know uh, all the details of this plan, but looking in, in the past plan, uh, in 2010 when we did the dual process and we cut out where we took post offices and collapsed them into a one facility and then had the carriers reporting to that facility and going out and delivering that mail. That posed some challenges, right? It posed challenges to the communities that we, that we were serving uh, by them having access uh, that had to be addressed and th those things were over overcome. But then you have the additional travel time that being added to the carrier's routes. Uh, so before we talk about the impact to the post office post workers themselves, what what effect will the public see? What differences will there be? I think, well, the differences they, that they uh, will see is probably in the connectiveness uh, with their local offices. Service standards um, have shown uh, uh, impact, uh, have been impacted over the years by various but that's by various initiatives that have taken places. So that we're seeing our service scores kind of stabilizing now. Uh, so we don't know what impact this is going to have because now you're talking about on a much larger scale. Uh, you're talking about over 6,000 post offices being collapsed into maybe around 600 facilities in one document that I've seen. And so what effect will it have on post office workers? What feedback are you getting from not only the workers, but the supervisors and the postmasters? I think it, it's, it's apprehensive at, at, at best right now. Uh, we, 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 it's the kind of the fear of the unknown. Uh, with the craft employees, they have collective bargaining agreements, so they have those protective rights uh, on movement. Uh, we do know that the postmaster general does want to see a uh, 50,000 employee reduction uh, through attrition, uh, as he says, and, and then, so we don't know. We know as managers, postmasters, and supervisors, when we go through these kind of organizational changes, the, that we do have rifts. And so we have to find 
uh, landing spots for our impacted folks. So we we it hasn't been announced, but we have to anticipate that there will we'll see some rifts with uh, managers in the post office. And what's the timeline for the implementation? What are they saying as to when this will take effect? I think it's it's really moving right now. It, 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 it's been moving. We heard initially that, you know, they were looking to get uh, facilities up and running uh, in near the end, of, I believe it was August. And, but then they were, they committed to not putting anything up and running that wasn't ready uh, until after peak. So now we're hearing that most of the startups are going to be in February. I know Athens, Georgia was scheduled to start on the 27th of uh, this month, of September. So, you know, the post office, Postmaster General says that this is going to streamline operations and it's going to save money. Do you agree? I mean, and if so, then that's a good thing. Um, I, I don't know if we agree. I think we have to see that, see that first. I, I think the, the history of this type of process shows that there's an increase, right? So we're going to increase uh, carrier routes. We have an increased vehicle costs. I think uh, uh, Save the Post Office reported that this, this initiative could cost $2 billion uh, to the post office just to initiate. So we we feel that there will be costs, uh, uh, some, some, some increased costs to the postal service. Now, does that outweigh uh, the streamlining? Uh, we don't know because those things, you know, the post office hasn't engaged us on. You know, I want to ask you about mail-in ballots, because obviously the post office is playing a major role in, in the last few elections because of that. And you sit on the Postal Service Advisory Board that oversees ballot delivery. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what can be done to improve the process. Well, we, we feel that the, the legislation we have uh, that, that, that's in, in, in the House right now will really help. If we have a streamlined, uniform uh, ballot, with a unique barcode that would help us to, to process that even better. Although even despite that, the post office really did a tremendous job in processing mail-in ballots in this last general election. So we're looking to do that. Uh, that's another concern that we have actually with the changes, because you never know how these changes impact, impact infrastructure and impact processing operations. Postal Service has put out a, a letter about making sure that we do everything that we can to make sure that the mail-in ballots are delivered. And we and we do just as we did in the last election. We'll do whatever we have to take to make sure those ballots get home. But initiatives can can hamper this. Initiatives at, at a wrong at the wrong time could could hamper it. Your organization also believes that the Postal Service should become the federal agency's preferred shipper. What does that mean? Explain that. Well, right now, the, the, the federal government is, is, is not under contract or obligation to, to ship. So they ship who, who whatever carrier they, they, they feel they, sh they should. I think one of the greatest things the Postmaster General did coming in to it was to collaborate uh, on, the, on, the, on the shipping of, of the test kits. Uh, that was a collaboration that, that we received. We would like to see more collaborations like that uh, with other federal agencies to even process their packages and their mail services. Uh, but why should it be that way? Shouldn't they just look for the cheapest, best way to get it to wherever it needs to go? Well, I, I think they can, they, they can enter negotiations with us and be the cheapest. Yes. We can, we can have it both ways. We can, they can have it both ways. What are some of the most important things you're looking at besides this plan that we talked about? That are affecting postal workers today. Uh, well, right now is it's 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 kind of uh, we're looking at the security 
on on the safety of our employees right now that seems to be an issue we're dealing with with our postal police officers um, and just maintaining a course of, of sustainability it took a long time for us to get here with the postal reform act to get to a place where we're sustainable again all and right ivan thank you so much for being on the program thank you mimi for having me Coming next, the government is planning to spend billions of dollars to revamp the biotech manufacturing industry. The National Science Foundation joins us to discuss their role in the initiative. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Federal agencies are implementing a recently issued executive order to accelerate U.S. biotechnology and manufacturing. It's meant to harness the power of biology to create new services and products like medical supplies, sustainable new fuels, and technologies to help fight climate change. Teresa Good is a division director for the National Science Foundation's Directorate for Biological Sciences. Teresa, welcome. Thank you, Mimi. Great to be here. We hear a lot about biotechnology and biomanufacturing. What does that mean? What are the products and services that it actually covers? Great. At NSF, we think of biotechnology as the tools, the data, the research infrastructure, the workforce capacity, um, all of that, all of those innovations that enable us to transform biological systems into useful products. Said more simply, really, biology has this tremendous capacity to reproduce, to evolve, to adapt, to respond to the environment. And what we hope we can do with that is harness that power of or biology and in biotechnology to solve problems like mitigating climate change, defeating the planet sustainably, to creating resilient supply chains, to creating new jobs um, in the bioeconomy that will serve all of society. So why now? Why is it so critical to start investing now? So there have been tremendous changes in in the kind of in biotechnology over the past decade or so that really over a, a decade ago we didn't have tools like genome editing and CRISPR that now enable us to pr precisely manipulate genomes. Uh, we couldn't sequence genomes at the rate that we can. We could not. Uh, synthesize DNA at the rate we can, and now there's tremendous capacity um, uh, in the technology to really advance, um, but we risk falling behind that uh, other countries have invested a lot. The U.S. is great at innovating, but the U.S. has fallen behind, perhaps, in translating those innovations into those societal solutions. You know that right now, We've invested in biotechnology discoveries. We've invested in artificial intelligence. We have the capacity to engage all members of society in biotechnology that we can include citizen science uh, to enable people at their computers to help fold proteins that are important in, in creating the next vaccines. We can engage them in doing do-it-yourself science in labs around the country. Um, and really, there's an opportunity if we coordinate, if we invest, um, if we translate the, the discoveries and the innovations to really make a big difference in society. Well, well, speaking of investment, how does the U.S. compare to other countries, and you know I'm talking about China, when it comes to the level investment uh, in biotechnology? So the, the U.S. Uh, really has done a great job in investing in the discoveries and the use-inspired research. We have, I think we are at the forefront still. Uh, in the world, but in terms of translation, 
uh, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of that capacity to scale up, we have fallen behind. Um, and I think that, uh, that China is just investing a tremendous amount. I think that it's really important for all nations that, that we kind of uh, develop a standard set of ethics and kind of best practices so that we ensure that there is safe, equitable distribution of the benefits of biotechnology. So what do you think are the biggest challenges in the biotech industry right now? So I think there are a couple. I think that uh, workforce development, I think that not everyone has been able to participate in the bioeconomy. I think that we really need to work hard to ensure that we are inclusive, that we engage the public in co-creation of those innovations that are going to solve problems like feeding the planet, like creating life-saving medicines. So I think that it's really important. I think that there is an issue of trust of science. And so again, engaging the public, including more people in co-creation of that knowledge. I think there's also an issue of infrastructure and of scale-up capacity that while we did tremendous things in the, the country in terms of preparing or, you know, vaccines for the pandemic. I think that the, there isn't sufficient capacity now to, to translate all of the innovations that people are making in the lab to the marketplace. And, and then that brings us to the NSF's role. Right. So, um, so we are, you know, NSF's foundations have always been in basic and use-inspired research, that that's kind of our bread and butter, that we're really proud of the investments we made in people like Jennifer Doudna, um, you know, uh, before she, you know, got her Nobel Prize for her work on CRISPR and genome editing of our investments and other people like Francis Arnold and, and many others that we, and that those investments we make in basic research help lead to those discoveries and innovations that are going to fuel the bioeconomy. But within the framework of this new executive order, NSF is charged to work across agencies to identify what are those cross-cutting themes that will enable all sectors of the bioeconomy, from health, from food, to climate change, to all of that in, and manufacturing, that we are charged to play a role in workforce development. And I think that that's really going to be important. We need, we need diverse um, STEM talent to fuel the bioeconomy, that there is a role for us as well in open data and, you know, and uh, data initiatives, there's a role for us in the international space as well. And I wanted to ask you real quick about the Regional Innovation Engine Program. Yes, absolutely. Quickly, that. what is that? So, you know, NSF, the, the big new thing at NSF is our new Directorate, Technology, Innovation and Partnerships, and their flagship program are these Regional Innovation Engines. And so what we hope through them is that we can build regional economies that we can, that will really impact all of the nation, that they'll be hopefully spread throughout the U.S., that, that many of the new kind of the initial applications in that space have come in in the biotechnology space. And so we're really excited about what's the potential of building regional economies through partnerships um, in our investments in these regional innovation engines. All right, Teresa, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. The Space Force recently unveiled its official service song. The musician who composed it joins us next to share his process and inspiration. That's straight ahead on Government Matters. Stay with us.
this is just part of the Space Force's official service song, Sempra Supra, which means always above, was unveiled on September 20th. It was written by Air Force veteran and musician Jamie Teachner. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, man. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved in writing the song. Yes, ma'am. So I, I spent years writing songs uh, for the radio in Nashville and had some success at that. Uh, began around 2001, 2002 uh, when I first began the music business journey. And then in 2015, I went into the Air Force and joined the Air Force Academy Band Wild Blue Country. And I traveled with the with them, I recorded with them and enjoyed that so much, uh, wearing the uniform and doing the same thing I'd done on the outside, uh, but actually for my country. And I worked a lot with Space Command. And so when I worked with them, I learned a lot about the mission. And that was what kind of began the journey of riding the Space Force song. And so, I mean, where do you start? Um, how, how, do you, how do you begin something like this? Do you, you, you do research, I gather? Yes, ma'am, exactly. So there's a few things I did. So as I said, I worked for the Air Force Academy Band Wild Blue Country, so I was stationed at Peterson Air Force Base, which became Peterson Space Force Base. And it was dual stationed, between, I was dual stationed between there and the Air Force Academy. And when I did that, that was a, a full-on Air Force mission of, of a public affairs type vocalist, uh, you know, where we traveled and we played music for the public, we played music for, uh, many other things and then we sang. But then the other part of my mission was that I was stationed right there beside uh, Space Command at the time before before Space Force uh, was an actual branch. And I learned so much just from firsthand, uh, you know, being there, uh, firsthand knowledge just from seeing what was going on, learning about the mission and thinking it was, uh, very important, you know, knew, knowing, understanding the importance of it, but still, you know, just singing to support them. And then I went to Tudley Air Base. It was a very vital uh, TDY, as we call it, temporary duty. And I went up there with General Raymond and Chief Toberman. And that was probably one of the most significant trips I could have taken because I understood much more of the mission of what would become the Space Force and our guardians. And, and, then, and Jamie, when it comes to the song itself, I mean, where where did you find the inspiration and what guidance did you get from Space Force Chief General uh, Raymond? Yes, ma'am. Well, I read as much as I could on the Space Force. I made sure that um, everything that I, every word I wrote, I wanted to make sure that it aligned with their mission and vision and, and the history of um, all the way back to 1945, uh, I believe is around the first time they started speaking of space. And my guidance was that it needed to fit within the service anthems um, that were that were in the marches, you know, type sound where that everything else sounds. It, it didn't need to be out of the blue different uh, because actually Space Force wasn't out of the blue. Uh, it was a long time coming uh, for the Guardians that they would eventually be called, but it was the Air Force's mission for many years uh, as one of our domains. Uh, in the Air Force. And so my guidance was to make sure that it fit, make sure the mission was correct, and make sure that it would be something that would that would be added to the Armed Services medley without uh, taking away from it. 
uh, in, in Sam. Space Force is coming up on its third uh, birthday. How long did it take you to write this song from beginning to end? Well, the preparation took a long time, but the actual writing, because that was something I was accustomed to doing, didn't take as long. Um, just because when you sit down and you begin, you know, creating something, you normally like to see it through fairly quickly because if you have your knowledge of what you want it to be, if it lingers too long, it, you might lose the uh, essence of what you're writing. But I began, I, I first began speaking with uh, General Raymond and Chief Toberman um, in just very shortly, just a few weeks after the Space Force had actually been signed into being as, a, as its own individual branch. And that was uh, December 20th, 2019 is when that happened. But uh, the song was written as early as January or February of, um, I can look back and see the exact date, but uh, of, of that time period of 2020, except uh, just, you know, maybe went through and changed a few lines and just kind of did a few things from their guidance, of course, and just wanted to main make sure that I maintained that uh, overall um, sentiment of what the Space Force was about and what it would actually uh, be eventually. And, you know, I wanted it to be something that encompassed all of those things. And Jamie, just very briefly, what do you want uh, people to feel when they hear the song? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I, I learned firsthand that I'm very thankful that I'm an Air Force veteran and an airman, uh, but I learned firsthand the importance of the Guardian's mission. And just from everything that they do, uh, what the most important thing would be for me to, for people to feel is when they're wearing the uniform in the same way that I wore the uniform in that same fashion, when I would stand and either sing or sing along with or hear the Air Force song, um, I felt a lot of, of pride and, and just, uh, you know, just honor to be a part of that, uh, an humble feeling of being able to wear that uniform. All right, Jamie, thank you. I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you, Mimi, so much. I appreciate what you do. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include 
uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.